Hello and welcome to another episode of Victor's Corner. I am your host, Victor Amoyo, one half of the Codex Prime podcast, and today is Tuesday, April 17th, 2018, and I am here doing the solo mission this week as Carl Bird will be attending tonight's SmackDown Live event at the Dunkin' Donuts Center in downtown Providence, Rhode Island, and as well as a few other cats uh, uh, that, we, that have guested on the show from the Wrestling Fantasy Warfare Facebook group, Adrian Price, among others. So uh, hopefully, hopefully uh, tonight's show will be a good one. I'll be tuning in after uh, tonight's episode of Victor's Corner, and I'll hold the fort down in the meantime. And uh, speaking of uh, speaking of wrestling, since we're on the subject, we'll, we might as well uh, get into it here. Uh, we got Kyle Chapman, who's joining us here. Thank you for joining us, sir. Uh, AKA the one of the biggest uh, Roman Reigns fans out there next to Adrian Price. But unfortunately, um, that might change in the coming weeks once Brock Lesnar beats the brakes off of Roman Reigns in Saudi Arabia at the Greatest Royal Rumble on April 27th on the, on the, on the WWE Network. That's going to be terrific. Uh, but yeah, since we're talking about wrestling, uh, real quick, uh, tonight... Tonight's event at SmackDown is going to be the second night of the uh, WWE Superstar Shakeup, in which case some um, different wrestlers from Raw and SmackDown are going to be uh, switched um, on both shows. So Raw, formerly Raw SmackDown uh, superstars, will will show up on tonight's SmackDown event, and just like last night, where SmackDown stars, formerly former SmackDown stars, showed up on last night's episode of Raw. And yeah, what's up, man? And you know, um, speak and you know, looking at the uh, superstar shakeup from last night, you know, I was ch- I was chiming in on the uh, wrestling fantasy warfare uh, group on Facebook, and you know, I shared the the collective sentiment was that you know it was pretty disappointing. It was a disappoint. It was a pretty disappointing night of uh, of shakeups on on last night's episode of Raw. Uh, the first uh, person uh, coming up from SmackDown was the. Uh, U.S. was the U.S. champion Jinder Mahal, aka Trashbag Mahal, aka Jobber Mahal, aka the guy who should never have been the WWE champion. But uh, thankfully, he is no longer a title holder because he did defend his U.S. title against Jeff Hardy, who returned from an injury to the ring last night, and he actually won the United States Championship from Jinder Mahal. So. Maybe there, maybe they'll start a little feud or a little program, uh, from here on out. But hey, uh, it's actually a pretty cool because now Jeff Hardy is a Grand Slam champion in the WWE, having won the Intercontinental Championship, uh, the Tag Team Championship with his brother Matt, and of course the WWE Championship back in I want to say two thousand nine or so. So hey, another Grand Slam winner is in the books, and uh, besides Hardy. Uh, there, there were a couple other uh, call-ups that I'm trying to recall from SmackDown. Let me see. There was the Riot Squad. They made their appearance on Monday Night Raw. Um, you know, it's going to be interesting to see to see them interact with the rest of the women's uh, roster on Raw. I think now that the Riot Squad has uh, uh, has been transitioned to Raw, perhaps the two remaining members of Absolution will join SmackDown. That's Mandy Rose and Sonya Deville. And in that wise, that that might that might uh, be sowing the seeds for a potentially interesting storyline. You know, since Paige had to retire from in ring action, and and she's now the SmackDown GM. 
uh, perhaps she might show a little favoritism towards her absolution members, uh, uh, Deville and Morgan, um, or, or rather Deville and um, Mandy Rose. And perhaps that might cause some contention among the uh, SmackDown women's roster. Maybe Paige might be a little maybe a little heelish, maybe a little tweener where she's fair to everyone else, but she shows obvious favoritism towards her absolution members. So that might have some interesting uh, implications moving forward. Um, also, uh, the big hype, the big hyped, the hyped up uh, storyline of last night's episode of Raw, you had uh, a five, a 10 man tag team match with The Miz, who was drafted to SmackDown, and The Miz Taraj, uh, and a couple other people I forget, versus some baby faces, among them Bobby Lashley, Finn Balor, and a mystery call up from SmackDown, which turned out to be. Bobby Roode, the glorious one. He's from SmackDown, but now he's on Raw. Uh, eh, I, that's that's my that's my assessment of that. Um, I'd say I say eh because you know not not that I'm against Bobby Roode because he is a talented performer and he was a great heel on NXT, but since he since he showed up on the main roster, he hasn't really shown much of a personality beyond a you know a great entrance theme that everyone sings along to and uh coming out in rick flair style robes and that's pretty much it that's pretty much all he's done besides win the u.s championship in a rather unmemorable reign so i hope that you know now that uh gender's on i mean not gender well now that uh bobby rude is on monday night raw perhaps he can bring out that heelishness that douchebaggery that we've seen so much of in NXT because he was an effective heel, someone who was exceedingly arrogant, someone who acted like like his booty didn't stink, and you know he just you came out in three piece suits looking dapper and just being so arrogant, you know, just lording his talent over everyone else. And we need to see that Bobby Roode. We need to see that arrogant side of him because as a babyface, he's pretty vanilla and. You know, Bobby Roode is just way too talented to just be another face on the main roster. So hopefully uh, him being on Raw will allow him to bring out that heelishness that we like that we that we that we've been that we've been craving since he's since he's been called since he's been called up from NXT. And uh, Eddie Ortiz, thank you for joining us, as well as John Haponic, the supervillain. Uh, Eddie, Eddie Ortiz just uh, chimed in. He says that uh, Road needs a heel turn. I agree. And Black Lesnar <laughs> is still boring as hell. Uh, Black Lesnar, of course, he's referring to Bobby Lashley. Uh, you know what? I mean, and and you know, I, I, I'll agree to a certain to a certain point. I mean, Eddie, uh, he, you did uh, leave a. A interesting comment on uh, last night's uh, thread of the Superstar Shakeup on Raw on the Fantasy Warfare uh, Facebook group, where you said that his that Bobby Lashley's most memorable, um, most memorable uh, moment in his first run in WWE was representing Donald Trump at WrestleMania 24 or 25 in like a hair versus hair match. Uh, you know. You know, Bobby Lashley, he's a primetime talent. I mean, he is a he does have the skills to be a main eventer. Um, and I think, I think he was a TNA, a World Heavyweight Champion, uh, shortly before he uh, got uh, signed, re-signed with uh, WWE. Um, I think he does have potential to be to be someone's to, to be someone special. I mean, he does have main event potential if they allow him to show more of a personality. I don't know how he is as a heel or or 
or face, but hopefully he can show some adequate personality because, you know, if he's just showing up, you know, just wrestling and he's just, you know, not really, you know, not not really building a character that we really care about, then he might as well be Apollo Crews, uh, the original version, version 1.0, and then Apollo Crews might be two, uh, uh, Bobby Lashley 2.0. If you put them together, can you tell them apart? I don't know. But, um, but, but Bobby Lashley does have potential to be a huge star. Um, the headband, I mean... In the headband, I don't, I don't know. Maybe, maybe he can just like put his name on it, and then they can sell like hotcakes on the WWE shop zone or whatever. I don't know, but uh, <laughs> but you know he does need to show more personality, and hopefully we'll get to see more of, more of him in action, and he can develop more of a character uh, moving forward. Um, I'd hate to see him, you know, be be uh, put put with uh, Titus Worldwide. You know, I don't know. Or maybe if he gets put put with them, if that ever happens, maybe he can give them the added push that they need to really make it, you know, as you know, credible faces or heels. But yeah, man, uh, tonight's uh, but yeah, that's that's pretty much uh, my take on the uh, superstar shakeup so far. Hopefully, tonight's episode of SmackDown will yield better results because thinking about uh, last year's superstar shakeup in WWE. Uh, SmackDown definitely got the short end of the stick um, in terms of pick. In terms of real picks, uh, Raw got the lion's share of like the good prime talent. So maybe we'll see some more call ups from NXT. I'm hoping that we do see Andrade Cien Almas on the main roster on SmackDown because with Zelina Vega, he can be a top flight heel. If not in the main event, then definitely upper mid card. Um, who else could be there? Um, well, since Authors of Pain is on Raw, maybe we can see Sanity on on SmackDown as well. Although I really can't picture Vince McMahon really using Sanity to the best of their abilities. I mean, I really like Eric Young. Um, Nikki Cross can be a really uh, wild, or a huge wild card in the women's roster on on SmackDown. Um, Alexander Wolfe and Killian Dane or Big Demo. Uh, they could probably tear it up in the in the tag team uh, division, and Eric Young. Eric Young can be really compelling, you know, when he needs to be. But I really don't see Vince McMahon giving them that that real push to make the fans really care about them beyond a full sale university's audience. So, you know, if they do get drafted to SmackDown, then I'm fingers crossed for them because they deserve to be really successful and the smackdown tag team division really does need some some more um, some more meat on the bone because right now we have the bludgeon brothers dominating and i think that the world has seen enough of usos versus new day matches you know as as awesome as their chemistry is in the ring we really don't need to see them to see those two teams mix it up anytime soon. You know, just separate them for a while. Let some other new fresh tag teams come in in the mix and go after those tag team titles. So I can see Sanity being a credible threat. And uh, I don't know. I mean, I'm hoping. I don't. I'm hoping Vince doesn't ruin them. But you know, he, time will tell. You know, he's he managed to ruin Vince McMahon. Tried, ruined Shinsuke Nakamura for a while, but hopefully we can see more of that. Uh, uh, more of a positive turn for Nakamura as well. You know, a heel Nakamura, I think, is going to be something real special. You know, provided that, 
you know, Nakamura steps his in-ring game up on the main roster instead of, you know, just coasting, you know. And, uh, oh, man. Oh, that stinks. So Eddie Eddie just uh, t- uh, left a, a comment on the chat. He says that um, they did that SmackDown, unfortunately, broke up uh, Shelton Benjamin and Chad Gable as a tag team. So Chad Gable is going to Raw. And I guess that leaves uh, Shelton Benjamin all by himself. Um, I don't know. Maybe, hopefully, they won't uh, let Shelton Benjamin revert to the gold standard gimmick that he had in his last run. Uh, Shelton Benjamin, again, another prime athlete. Um Personality-wise, uh, you know, he kind of, personality-wise, I, I guess, like, I mean, fans, I mean, he does have a a decent following. I, I remember in his main roster, in his in his uh, first run on WWE, he, def- he definitely had the respect of the fans for being a, a, cre- a credible and talented athlete. But as far as personality goes, you know, hopefully he can develop a little more, more of one and, you know, you know, show, show us a little more range than just, you know, Highly talented and accomplished athlete. Uh, no gold hair because we don't need to see Shelton Benjamin, you know, break out the uh, the dye, you know, or the bleach, if you will. We don't need to see that, you know. Just Shelton Benjamin, the wrestling machine. You know, I know the wrestling machine gimmick was taken by Kurt Angle and probably Taz. He was a suplex machine, but I can see that Shelton Benjamin, the um, the wrestling machine, just intense banging matches throughout. I can see them like pushing that, and then he can be a, a real solid upper mid carder, and and who knows, maybe he can be pushed to the main event. Hey, if it worked for Jinder, then I can definitely see Shelton Benjamin mixing it up with AJ Styles. I mean, poof, that could be some real fire right there. Uh, and yes, Carl, I agree. Do not, under any circumstances, bring back uh, Mama Benjamin, aka Shelton Benjamin's mom. Um, I forget the name of the actress who played her. I think she was on some sitcoms in the 90s, I want to say. like like the big sassy black mom. I forget, but yeah, that was an extreme embarrassment back in the day. I, I cringed, and that really set, it really, I guess that set black wrestlers back a, a, a couple years, at least in my view, because that was not cool. Um, yeah, Thea, Thea Vidali, or Thea Vidal. Yeah, I think that's the name of the actress. But, uh... But yeah, man, SmackDown Live at the at the Dunkin' Donuts Center. Hopefully, it'll be a, a, a good show. Um, I am curious though. I want to I want to I want to know if uh, Carl or Eddie or Adrian can take pictures of uh, the SmackDown Live uh, crowd because from what I hear, uh, SmackDown Live attendance is usually lo- less less than Raw, lower than Raw's, to the point where the hard camera side has rows upon rows upon rows of empty seats. So they pretty much move everyone to like two-thirds of the arena to make it look like a full crowd even though it's really not some so hopefully somebody can take a picture of that and send that to me and so i can so i can see like what the crowd's like tonight's uh audience thank you carl uh so yeah that's uh pretty much uh, my thoughts on the uh on the wrestling front and um i got i actually got a couple of movies that that uh, that i'll review as well as some headlines uh, first movie that I'll talk about um, is a movie that is still playing in theaters. It's been playing in theaters for the, like the last uh, couple weeks or so, and it's an excellent horror film. And it's directed by John Krasinski and written co-written by John Krasinski. St- also stars Emily Blunt and Millicent Simmons and Noah Jupe. And it's called A Quiet Place. Yes, A Quiet Place is an excellent ninety-minute horror film 
uh, and it is pretty. I would say it's my f- my favorite film of the year so far. Yes, it definitely it 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 edged out Black Panther, but in my view, but uh, that's 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 a testament to the quality of A Quiet Place. Uh, this film, um, it's about it takes place in the post apocalypse, if you will, where 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 basically humanity humanity has been devastated much of humanity has been killed off it seems um because of these uh monsters um their origins are unknown we don't know if they're monsters or aliens we don't know where they come from but what we do know is that these monsters are extremely vicious uh they cannot be killed easily and they hunt exclusively with sound so the monsters are completely blind, so they can so they hunt by sound, but they can hear the most minute sound um, from a great distance. So if you like <clears throat> clear your throat, or if you're even scribbling on a on a piece of paper with a pencil, or if you drop or if you drop a pin, literally, then those monsters can hear you from a distance, and then they'll zoom, run up, run up in your shit like the Flash, and then they'll just straight disembowel you, straight take you apart, straight murder you six ways from Sunday. And so, because of the because of how powerful and dangerous these monsters are, and because of the fact that they can they can hear sound even to the most minute pin drop, uh, this family, uh, played by John Krasinski, the Abbott family, uh, John Krasinski plays this guy named Lee. And Emily Blunt plays his wife Evelyn and their two kids. Um, everything that they do, uh, they have to be as absolutely quiet as possible, even quieter than church mice. So even the most minute sound, um, they have to take great pains to avoid making, even by accident. So things that we take for granted or things that we don't think about every day, like like eating, like eating food on plates using silverware, they can't do that. They have to eat with their hands and use like giant. Uh, uh, cabbage or lettuce leaves to and eat with their hands so they won't make any noise um, if they need to uh, pour water they have to do it extremely quietly uh, they can't watch tv they can't um listen to any radios but if they do then um there's a there's a there's a part in the house in the scene where part in the movie rather where john krasinski is in a basement and he he's taking great pains to soundproof it just enough so he can actually like listen in on their radio to pick up any other survivors. Uh, when they're walking on the street, um, they, they've, uh, they've, um, or, or they're walking on uh, uh, d- uh, dirt roads, they have to lay down some, some grains, some soft grains, so they can muffle their footsteps. When they walk on streets, they have to walk, you know, pretty, pretty gradually, and, you know, slowly enough, they can't run. So they have to walk either barefoot or wear the softest sole shoes possible that don't make any foot foot footsteps. So basically, every, everything they do, they have to be completely silent to the letter, and which kind of makes you wonder, you know, what happens if they got to use the bathroom? You know, what happens if they fart, or what happens if they take a deuce, or take a or go number one? You know. I don't know, man. It's it's just certain things that they've got to really take take account of in order to survive. And in this film, they're about um, about four hundred and some odd days into this post apocalypse, and they're trying to find. And John Krasinski's character, he's trying to find ways to defeat these monsters. He's trying to research ways how he can actually defeat them. And and the film is just absolutely terrific. Like first of all, um, John Krasinski. 
he's a fantastic director. Um, who knew that Jim from The Office had those skills? But um, what was interesting is that uh, you see his character in Emily Blunt, uh, his character who's who's very pregnant. And so childbirth is anything but a quiet experience. So that alone is like the ticking time bomb throughout the majority of the film because you don't know how that's going to play out um, if and when it happens. Um, seeing and seeing that, seeing how uh, they interact, and seeing how um, they, how this family, uh, you know, converses with each other with via sign language, and how they communicate was rather interesting, and it added to the uh, suspense of the film. Um, Millicent Simmons, who plays the uh, younger youngest daughter, or Reagan, uh, she's deaf, so she wears a hearing aid, and so. And so whenever her hearing aid is off or whenever the camera cuts to her perspective, you, you don't hear anything. You don't hear any sound. But when the camera cuts to another character, you, he, you hear ambient noise from their environment. And then when it cuts back to her, all the sound goes out again. So that's a very interesting and very creative way of conveying uh, sound design in the film. Um, the pacing of the film, a, a Quiet Place, was was in my view perfect. Um, there was there was no fat to trim in this film. There were no wasted moments. So everything that happened from the opening credits to the closing credits had a purpose. Uh, there were no scenes that that felt that slowed down the pacing of the film. Everything was was well was well edited. So um, <clears throat> and and. And what added to that to that excellent pace was that everything was told visually through visual storytelling. So. You see them conversing in sign language, or you see uh, uh, objects that they're looking at, whether it's like bulletin boards or newspapers or things in their environment, like um, <clears throat> like certain like light bulbs or that change color that might signify danger, or <clears throat> or uh, or um, or it's just like or certain shots from their perspective that pretty much conveyed like what all the information that you really needed to know about those characters and what they were going through. Um, and, and also too, um, I gotta say like Emily Blunt, like this was a great performance from her because, uh, she's always, she's always been a terrific actress and, you know, she's always been rocking it in the, uh, sci-fi, uh, genre and, and A Quiet Place is no exception. And, you know, seeing what her character goes through, seeing the steps that she takes to, uh, to look out for, for her kids is just completely breathtaking. And in fact, uh, there's a scene where where uh she is in grave danger from these monsters that that uh kind of you know get a general sense of her location and just seeing how that scene plays out and I and I don't want to give out any details I was just I kind of held my breath throughout most of that sequence and also seeing uh seeing uh, John Krasinski's character and how he interacts with the younger younger son and how and how through their interactions they explain the uh, the more of the rules of this world that they live in was also pretty was also pretty fascinating. Um, and John Haponic leaves left leaves a really really good question too. That and, and that kind of it kind of uh, bugged me a little. It says John asks why get pregnant during the apocalypse? And you know what? I had that exact same question. You know, watching a quiet place. I mean, and it, it definitely added to the tension of the film and it, and it made their situation that much more horrifying uh, because as I said before, as I said earlier, childbirth is not a quiet experience. And so, you know, on the one hand, it's like, I kind of understand why, why they're pregnant, you know, 
considering what happens in the opening sequence of the film. And, you know, this family's going through grief and, you know, just some still trying to overcome this deep-rooted tragedy. But at the same time, it's like, you know, in the post-apocalypse, when you're living in a world where monsters can pick, pick up the most faintest sound, you know, wherever you're at, you, you might as well wrap it up. And more to the point, if, you're, if you are having sex in the post-apocalypse with those sound-sensitive monsters running around, I mean... I mean, I, I don't, I don't know. Like, if 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 you're if you're if you're doing the wild thing, if you're knocking the, knocking the boots, I mean, if you're in the moment, right? If you're caught up in the moment, you you, you might you, you might not help yourself, but you but make those you know noises of ecstasy and pleasure, and the next thing you know, you know, you know, you're getting it in. Next thing you know, boom, you get a you get a like a you get your 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 chest caved in or or slashed or disemboweled, and you don't know. I, I don't I don't know, but um, it's a it's a it's a pretty it's a pretty fine tightrope that you got to walk in that case. You know, is it worth is it worth the risk? I don't know. You tell me. But um, but a quiet place though. Like I said, it's an excellent horror film. It's ninety minutes long, no wasted movements. Um, I get the sense that John Krasinski. I don't know if he's a video gamer or or a gaming fan, but he might. I could, I could tell that his film is inspired in part by The Last of Us, which is a great uh, video game. I can't wait for The Last of Us Part 2. I don't know if it's coming out this year or next year for the PS4, but that's probably my most anticipated title. But A Quiet Place, in terms of its uh, atmosphere and its uh, sense of dread and its you know somewhat depressing uh, tone, it does remind me a lot of The Last of Us. And... And maybe this film is the closest we can see to a Last of Us adaptation on film. Because, you know, with the track record of video games on film, they're pretty much consistently terrible across the board. So A Quiet Place might be our best bet. But in any case, if you're a fan of horror films, suspense, uh, I highly, highly recommend you check out A Quiet Place. It is in theaters now, well worth the ticket price. Um I can't wait for it to come out on Blu-ray because I really do. I really will add it to my collection, and I will watch it again because there's just so much, so much I love about it visually, in terms of editing, the excellent sound design, and the performances across the board are terrific. So check it out. A Quiet Place is in theaters now. And so uh, before I get to my uh, <clears throat> uh, second film, which is a doozy, um, I'm going to get into some uh, some news and headlines of this week. And um, I begin with uh, two uh, two rather rather sad uh, headlines here. Uh, first one is uh, the passing of of Oscar winning director Milos Forman, uh, who passed away uh, last Friday at the age of eighty six. Uh, Milos Forman was the two time Academy Award winning director of of such films. Uh, one Flew Over the, Over the Cuckoo's Nest, starring Jack Nicholson in 1975, and one of my favorite films, Amadeus, in 1984, with F. Marie Abraham, who also won an Oscar uh, for this film. Uh, Milos Forman, uh, he, in, in addition to these Oscar-winning films, he also directed a couple of a few films in his native uh, Czech Republic or Czechoslovakia. Uh, he directed uh, Loves of a Blonde and The Fireman's Ball, uh, both films which are part of the Czech New Wave. 
in addition to well-regarded films in the United States, such as Hair in 1979, uh, The People versus Larry Flint in 1996, starring Woody Harrelson, uh, Man on the Moon, he also directed, starring uh, Jim Carrey as, as uh, Andy Kaufman, and uh, Goya's Ghosts in 2006, starring Natalie Portman and Javier Bardem. Uh, a highly talented director. Um, I've never seen People vs. Larry Flint, but I've but that's one that I've, I've been meaning to watch for some time now. Uh, Woody Harrelson plays the title character. Um, Man on the Moon I haven't seen, but I hear Jim Carrey was awesome in that movie as Andy Kaufman. And I think there's a documentary on Netflix about the making of that movie itself. So Milos Forman, 86 years old, he had a great run, you know, two classic films. In fact, I, I watched uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest the other day, and it's actually one of three films in the history of the Oscars to win the Big Five uh, Academy Awards. It won Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, Best Actress, and Best Screenplay, Original or Adapted. Um so that's so one of three films to win those to win the big five Oscars. The other two being uh, "It Happened One Night," starring Clark Gable and Claudette Colbert in 1934, and "The Silence of the Lambs" in '91, starring Jodie Foster and Anthony Hopkins. So yeah, uh, a big loss, but you know he's he's left he, he's left behind some true classics. Uh, Milos Forman and the. Uh, and the second loss that that we've that has uh, has happened uh, this uh, this past Sunday was uh, the late uh, Arlie Ermey, uh, who passed away Sunday at the age of seventy four. Um, he was best known for playing Gunnery Sergeant Hartman in the uh, Stanley Kubrick film Full Metal Jacket, which features uh, one of the most memorable opening scenes in any film, where uh, his character, uh, who's a who's a drill sergeant and as he was in real life, uh, dressing down the recruits in just completely and just memorable and hilarious and shocking detail um the interesting thing about that opening scene in full metal jacket is that half the dialogue that he came up with was off the cuff just improvised probably some stuff that he said to real life recruits at some point and originally arlie ermy he was a consultant on the film he was just an advisor so i think i guess they cast uh, someone else to play the drill sergeant but arlie ermy was so was was so good and so into uh, the role that Stanley Kubrick decided to cast him instead, and and he was a big big part in making Full Metal Jacket a memorable film. Uh, Arlie Ermey, in addition to this film, he was also featured in featured in many other films such as um, uh, Toy Story, The Frighteners, Seven, and many many others. So yes, rest in peace to uh, to both men uh, who left their mark in cinema. And. Uh, also, uh, we have some other news here on the uh, comics front. Speaking of DC Films, uh, DC Films' Birds of Prey film adaptation has finally hired a director for that project. Uh, DC Films has hired Kathy Yan to direct the Birds of Prey adaptation, which will star Margot Robbie as Harley Quinn. Uh, this will be Kathy Yan's first big-budget feature. Uh, her only previous film was the 2018 Sundance Jury Prize winning movie Dead Pigs which I've never heard of, but okay. Uh, she will be the second female filmmaker to helm a DCEU film after Patty Jenkins, who directed Wonder Woman. And um, hey, you know what? It's cool. Um, uh, hopefully, uh, Kathy Ann will, will stay in the director's chair and not, you know, 
you know, find herself on the on, the, on a revolving door of directors, much like the Flashpoint film has seen. Um, with Kathy Yen directing this um, this uh, big budget uh, uh, film from a major studio, DC uh, Warner Brothers and DC Comics, it does continue an interesting trend I've seen of independent and low budget filmmakers, you know, helming these big budget Hollywood projects. So like when you're helming. Like you have these directors, like for example, um, Anna Bowden and Ryan Fleck, this directorial duo. They've directed such small time and memorable memorable films as Half Nelson with Ryan Gosling, uh, Sugar, uh, Mississippi Grind with uh, Ben Mendelsohn and Ryan Reynolds. You know they're they're in, they're like indie indie darlings, if you will, and their films are terrific. And it's interesting to see them go from like low budget independent features shot locally to like these huge mainstream tentpole studio releases and in, in, in Bowden and Flex case they're directing the upcoming Captain Marvel film um, and then you have Ryan Coogler who directed Black Panther before that he directed um, Fruitvale Station and Creed and then you have Ava DuVernay who directed Selma, I Will Follow, uh, Middle of Nowhere, uh, the documentary 13th, and then she helmed A Wrinkle in Time. And I think she's going to helm The New Gods uh, for DC. So like I said, it's a, it's a pretty cool uh, trend of, of all these low-budget filmmakers going from zero to 60 where – where you have, in Kathy Yant's case, where she's directed one, one low-budget feature and now she's in the big time already. So – I think it's pretty. I think, I think it's pretty cool, um, seeing these uh, these low budget uh, directors, independent directors, get a chance to helm something major. At the same time, though, you know, from a business standpoint, I think it's easier to to get those types of filmmakers because, you know, on the one hand, it may be easier to you know kind of manipulate them and and give them a studio mandated vision. And you know, allow them enough breathing room to include their little idiosyncrasies. Um, that that's not the case all the time. Like for example, Ryan Coogler, he directed Black Panther and made it the most distinct and memorable MCU film to date. So there's a case. So and Ryan Johnson, of course, uh, the director of uh, The Last Jedi. You know, he's his vision was far and above what anybody expected, and now he's direct, He's going to helm his own new trilogy of star wars films so you know it's not a it's not always the case where you have small filmmakers you know instantly placed underneath the thumb of like the big budget executives and they have to direct whatever they tell them to but you know it's just a, it's just a, a trend that i've always noticed um eddie eddie leaves a comment uh why is dc still trying to make movies uh they seem better at making tv shows instead um, I, I kind of agree. Um, from what I hear, uh, The Flash and Arrow, um, those are two, and even Supergirl, those are actually terrific shows. From what I, from from reviews that I've heard, I've, I haven't watched any of any of those uh, shows, but I could see why uh, why the shows are um, are more highly praised. And even and even going away from the Arrowverse, you have Smallville, for example, and uh, I think Krypton just came out. Um. John Hoponic says in regards to the Birds of Prey film, I can't believe they're still making it. I agree. I agree in the sense that uh, DCEU, um, they're still plugging along. Um, I don't know what this Flashpoint, how this Flashpoint movie will affect Birds of Prey, if it's going to be part of the remixed or rebooted universe of DC. But at this point, you know, with the with the lone exception of Wonder Woman, 
DC should cut their losses and just start from scratch again and focus on strictly st- standalone movies and not concentrate on having to connect everything in an interconnected universe. You know, I think I think DC has tried way too hard to emulate Marvel Studios' blueprint and it's blown up in their face. But um but yeah, we'll 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 see we'll see where the cookie crumbles in regards to this Birds of Prey film. I will say that I hope that it is better than the, than the TV show because the TV show I couldn't really get into. Um another uh <clears throat> headline here, uh David Leach, the director of John Wick, uh, and the upcoming Deadpool 2 and Atomic Blonde. Uh, he's going to be directing the upcoming Fast and Furious spinoff, which will star Dwayne The Rock Johnson and Jason Statham. Uh, the spinoff is r- rumored to be called Hobbs and Shaw in regard in reference to uh, The Rock and uh, Statham's characters. Uh, Chris Morgan, who's, who's written six of the Fast and Furious films, he's going to be writing the script for this um, Hobbs and Shaw spinoff. And the film is scheduled for release on July 26 to 2019. Um, hey, you know, David Leach, he is uh, he's definitely a whiz when it comes to action films. John Wick, the first film, is one of my one of my absolute favorites, as well as John Wick Chapter Two. Uh, that one was directed by his co-director of the first film, Chaz Stileski. Um, you know, the, the Fast and Furious movies, they are what they are. They're completely popcorn munching mouth breathing entertainment i i dig them you know they're they are what they are i'm not expecting mad max fury road levels of brilliance they're just simply fun films and they do have a place uh hobbs and shaw or maybe maybe calvin and hobbs and shaw i don't know but (laughs) but uh you know the rock and jason statham man you can tell that they have so much fun with these movies i mean with their uh their scenes that they share together in uh furious seven and uh the fate the fate of the furious uh from last year you could tell that they always that they're just you know just having tons of fun on screen and 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 well you know what else what else can you say it's it's jason statham it's the rock it's not going to win any Oscars, but I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure it will put butts in seats. It's the type of movie that Movie Pass was made for, and I will be there for sure. Uh, speaking of Fast and Furious, though, I still haven't bought Fate of the Furious. Um, thinking about it more, it's like, eh, I'll, I'll buy it when it's like maybe like five bucks or less. If it's like stuck in like the bargain bin at Target or Best Buy or something. Oh man, <clears throat> uh, John Haponic says rubber bullets are useless against the Rock. <laughs> Apparently, they are because in Furious Seven, the Rock took, or was it Furious Eight? See, they all blend together. Uh, the Rock took a ru- rubber bullet square in the chest directly. He could have died. He should have died, but no, he just pr- brushes it off like Superman. Uh, and uh, Eddie Ortiz says, uh, "I miss when Fast and Furious was about cars and driving." Yeah, yeah, I can, I can, I can see that. But at the same time, it's like you can only do so much with the Fast and Furious series. You know, with Fury, with uh, the fifth film, uh, Fast Five, they kind of switched up the formula with, with by making it a heist movie, which kind of, which definitely gave the franchise some new life. 
which which it sorely needed. Um, I'm I'm just waiting until they take Fast and Furious into space, either in space or time travel. One of the two. They might as well. They 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 might as well because at this point, we're, the the Fast and Furious movies are live action cartoons. The, the space time travel interdimensional travel like interstellar i don't know they they might they might as well take it there <clears throat> now speaking of crazy and ridiculous movies <sighs> there's one movie that i have watched and thank you movie pass because if it wasn't for the gloriousness of movie pass i would not have even thought of watching this movie but i had the distinct pleasure of watching one of the most craziest and batshit unintentional comedies I've seen for quite some time, and that is Tyler Perry's Acrimony. Yes, yes, your boy Victor Omoyo has seen a Tyler Perry movie in theaters willingly. <laughs> oh my god. Uh, where to begin with Acrimony? Okay. You you know my okay before I before I get into it you know my feelings you know my my stance and my feelings on Tyler Perry's movies I think that he can't write or direct worth a damn his movies are essentially all the same ex- extremely exaggerated over the top just poorly written badly directed hammy acting um, heavy handed heavy handed moralizing. Too much Medea shenanigans. Like, hallelujah, Jesus. Oh, hell no. But Acrimony is one of Tyler Perry's Medea-free movies. But that does not mean that it is void of crazy, ridiculous nonsense. Uh, (laughs) So Acrimony stars Taraji P. Henson, uh, Lyric Bent, and uh, Crystal Stewart. And... This film uh, sees Taraji P. Henson playing this really disturbed and mentally unstable woman named Melinda Moore. And Melinda, she's married to this guy named Robert Gale, played by Lyric Bent. And the film flashes back to uh, when they first met as teenagers or when they were college students. Um, Their younger selves were played by... um, Agiona Alexis, who plays the young Melinda, who coincidentally also plays the young version of Cookie in Empire, same actress. And Antonio Madison plays the young Robert. So they play the young versions of them. And okay, so this the storyline of this film is this. Okay, so so Melinda and Robert they're married. They they're married, and um, Robert is this aspiring inventor. Uh, he invents this. He's tr- he's working on for twenty years of his life since he was a teenager from 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 when he was a college student to the present day. He's been working on this self charging battery, which is sort which kind of functions like Tony Stark's arc reactor in the Iron Man Marvel films, where it act where it's where it's its own self contained power source. It's able to power up his whole his whole house. It's able to power up like whole buildings. Like no need for electricity, no need for gas. It just powers up everything in in your house. And it's this awesome invention that he's been trying to work on for the past twenty years of his life. And throughout their marriage, uh, Taraji P Henson's character Melinda. 
Uh, she's trying her best to support her husband in his single-minded endeavor. Like she's the one who she's she's sort of the breadwinner. She she's the one who she has to hold on to this office job. She's bringing in the paychecks while her husband stays at home and works in this invention. While at the same time, for twenty years of his life, he's been trying to apply to this one this one tech firm that he's been trying to get his invention uh, uh, sold to. For 20 years of his life, he, okay, 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 more on that later. And some, and somehow throughout their marriage, uh, Melinda just snaps. She has had enough of her husband. She goes fucking crazy. And then next thing you know, uh, she decides to take her, her, her womanly wrath and vengeance on this guy and, Shit goes all over the place that makes absolutely no freaking sense whatsoever. Okay. Okay, where to begin with this movie? So you have the setup there. Now, now watching a Tyler Perry movie, the first thing that, that that comes to mind is the phrase, that's not how any of this works. Every Tyler Perry movie I've seen, I've always say that phrase. That's not how that's not how any of this works. What? Okay. So the how the movie is framed. The movie is framed with Taraji P Henson. She's she's at this uh, uh psychologist psych, psychologist's office. And this psychologist is off screen and she's asking her questions about, you know, what's what's wrong with her? What's wrong with Melinda? You know, why she's so upset at her husband? You know, how does she feel about all this? And Taraji P Henson, she I give her credit I give her all the credit in the world because Taraji P. Henson, Taraji P. Henson is a fantastic actress. And in this movie, she just swings for the goddamn fences because when she goes full tilt crazy, she goes full tilt crazy. Like she's she's like sitting in the psychi- psychiatrist's office just smoking, smoking cigarettes, just chain smoking. She's just you know, wide-eyed, just jittery, so vengeful, just dropping F-bombs left and right, talking about this motherfucking man, I'm going to get this motherfucker, I want to kill him, He, I gave him my life, I gave him my soul, I gave him my love, my money, my virginity, I want what's coming to me. And, and it's like, and she's 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 tell she's unloading all of her crazy nonsense on the psychiatrist, and so the movie, throughout the movie, you see what Taraji P Henson is is telling the psychologist, you know. So all the so all the events we see in the film is just Taraji P Henson, you know, recounting what's what's happened. And so watching this whole film, I'm thinking to myself, okay. First of all, this is a really clumsy framing device narratively speaking because you have Taraji P. Henson recounting this story to the psychologist so as the movie's going along you see you see scenes that obviously that her character Melinda is in so she's telling she's talking about those scenes from her perspective but you also see scenes with her husband uh Robert where Taraji is nowhere nowhere to be found so there's no way Taraji can can narrate those events that her husband is in, if if, if it's just her husband interacting with with other characters and you know Melinda's nowhere to be found. How is she narr- narrating those parts of the story? So 
either she's omniscient or it's just an example of how Tyler Perry is just incompetent when it comes to writing. Because if you have a character that's recounting a story, that character can't recount scenes in which that character is not even present. It's the same problem that we saw in, tempta- in uh, Temptation, Confessions of a Marriage Counselor, where I'm watching the scene and I'm like, okay, so you mean to tell me that uh, 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 the main character is recounting scenes where Brandy's character is in, and even though she has nothing to do with her scenes, so how does she know what Brandy said or did? It, just, 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 just bad writing right there. The, so just, so the, the framing was off, point number one. Uh, point number two, okay. You you have you have these characters as they're written. You have uh, this guy Robert, who um, who's this who's this well-to-do, very intelligent guy, and he's married to and he's married to uh, and he and he first meets Melinda as their as a college student. They meet in college and they felt and they fall in love. And uh, Melinda has a bit of a temper problem. So there's a scene <laughs> there's a scene in the film. Where, uh, where, uh, where Melinda, she's she's calling she's calling her uh, her boyfriend, her then boyfriend Robert, but she doesn't hear from him. So she's so she's like calling him up, calling him up, calling him up, calling him up, calling him up constantly, no response. So so she thinks in her mind instantly, oh oh, this motherfucker's cheating on me. Oh, I'm not gonna be I'm not gonna be a fool. I wanna see what's going on. And so 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 young Melinda she gets in her jeep and she drives and she finds out where this guy lives she goes to her um her boyfriend's house which turns out to be this 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 RV this ramshackle RV which is uh parked in this in this really nice looking suburban neighborhood so in all these nice houses in this neighborhood he's the only one who lives in an RV which which goes to show you that you know he's poor and he's struggling because he can't just live in an ordinary house he's got to live in a goddamn trailer to to communicate to you the viewer that this guy is poor and hard up because he can't live in a normal house and convey that same and convey that same message because that's too subtle and so Melinda she drives up to her boyfriend's house after not hearing from him all day and so she gets it in her mind that this guy's cheating on her. So what she does, instead of knocking on the door, you know, of his trailer and to 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 find out what's going on, she rams her Jeep into into Robert's trailer to the point where she overturns it. But at the same time, uh Melinda injures or injures herself during the process, so much so that apparently she, her steering wheel hit her uterus so hard that she injured herself while running while running a while overturning Robert's trailer to the point where the steering wheel i guess embedded in her uterus which explains why she can't have any kids Melinda can't have kids because a steering wheel dug into her uterus because she ran over, well, she ran into her boyfriend's trailer and overturned it out of anger. Okay. Okay. I, I, I guess her Jeep didn't have any airbags. Okay, so so that plants one seed as to why their relationship goes south. They can't have any kids. Okay. Here's another reason why Robert... Robert has been working on his invention of this self-charging battery for 20 years 
and without applying for any other job. Because there's a scene where he, where I guess shortly after this incident, and Robert, you know, decides, oh, I'm not, I'm never gonna cheat on her on my on my girlfriend again. He drops this this bombshell out of nowhere that the that the film provides no hints for before. Robert explains why he can't find a job, in which he sa- he tells he tells Melinda, um, "Oh, baby, I gotta tell you something. When I was fifteen, I was in a gang, and I have a record. And since I have a felon, since I'm a felon, I can't find a job, and I can't be hired anywhere. So that's why I gotta stay home and work on this battery for twenty years while you go out and uh, bring home the bacon." Okay. That's not how that works. I understand that the criminal justice system is extraordinarily shitty to the point where uh, people who come out of prison, former felons who are genuinely trying to rebuild their lives, they can't find jobs because their criminal records are held against them by the vast majority of employees. I understand that it's legal for employers to legally discriminate against felons, former felons, by having them check on the, on applications, have you ever been, ever been convicted of, of a felony or do you have a criminal record? If you check yes, boom, they can instantly discard your application. I understand it's, it's 10 times harder for felons, for former felons to get jobs. But Tyler Perry expects us to believe that this guy, this supposedly brilliant Tony Stark, Bill Gates-level genius, can't find a job in the tech industry. So he's forced, he's resigned himself to apply to this one this one technology firm in his neighborhood for 20 years because he can't find any other job. He can't he can't get into any retail jobs. He can't shop his invention to Apple, to Google, to freaking Microsoft, to any other venture capitalist firm in the country or in the world. He can't shop it to Stark's to Stark Industries. He can't shop it to the Rand Corporation. Nowhere. So because he has a fel- he can't because he has a felony, and because he was in a gang since he was 15 so he says he has to stay home he has to be a stay-at-home husband and work on his battery and that's the excuse that the film wants us to believe and that's the and that's the uh and that's the second biggest reason apart from them not have not being able to have kids as to why their relationship goes south as to why melinda goes so freaking nuts and so i'm sitting there thinking okay this is this is terrible writing and 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 what makes it even more terrible is that okay this robert guy who's been working on his battery for all that for two decades applying for this company yeah he's a lousy husband but he's not a he's not a lousy guy he's not a bad guy and throughout the film the film i don't know if i don't know if it's the incompetence of tyler perry's writing or not I don't know if I don't know if his intention was to make you angry towards the husband and feel for Melinda, but but the guy he's not a bad dude. Yeah, he's he's a lousy husband in the sense that he's so singularly obsessed with his invention and he doesn't make he makes absolutely no efforts to find any jobs anywhere, not even something to just, you know, tide them over to pay, help pay the bills. Yes, he he uh, he allows Melinda to drain her own health to her her own life insurance that her that she inherited from her dead mother all three hundred thousand dollars worth, um, 
by helping him buy materials and 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 a car and all this um yeah yeah he, yeah he bled her dry but he's not a bad guy like he only cheated he cheated on her once when they were uh teenagers and that was it he learned his lesson there when when melinda ran into his rv he learned that lesson quick but <sighs> but you mean to tell me that he can't find it oh my it's it's just shockingly incompetent that this is this is intelligence insulting level writing this is intelligence insulting level writing and and then and then on top of that you have melinda she has two sisters okay two sisters uh named june and brenda and these two sisters they're they're basically the exact same character um and they're never apart. There's not a scene in the movie where these two, where her two sisters are apart from each other. And in fact, they actually marry, they have two boyfriends and they marry their boyfriends. And her sisters, Melinda's sisters, their husband, their spouses, they're always in the same scene. Every scene. It's like, it's like they're it's like the husbands are symbiotes, right? Like like Carnage and Venom. And the sisters are like the hosts. So they can't. So they can't be anywhere without their symbiotes right behind them. Like we are Venom, we are Carnage, or some shit. And the sisters are just so abrasive. They're just so anti-Robert throughout two thirds of the film. They're like, "Ah, oh, Melinda, I can't understand why you let this man uh, drain you, use you for your money, for your inheritance. This man ain't shit. You know, thanks to him, you lost your mom's house. Uh, you're you're paying all these bills. You're letting him sit at home working in all this invention. You're 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 out there." you know busting your ass in this office job you know you gotta divorce this man you gotta drop this man like a bad habit he ain't shit all the time and like they're like getting like her sisters her sisters are getting inside her head which adds to her insanity and and like and and it's like and you're sitting there like oh like what what is going on it's like why have these two characters why have the, why have two sisters at all? Why not just have one sister who's completely sassy and just belligerent, and then have a have a husband? In fact, the husband doesn't even need to be there because the husbands don't do anything in the film; they're just props, props. Okay, <clears throat> okay. So 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 as the, as the film goes on, you know, with with acrimony. Um, aside from the bad writing, you have like this really drab visual st- style in the film. So the whole film is just awash in this really grayish, grayish, purplish tone throughout the whole film. And, you know, you're just sitting there and it's just it's just a dull film to watch. Um, no dynamic camera movements, no no real uh, editing tricks or anything. It's just blandly shot. Just to give you the idea that... Um, that you know this film is dark i suppose this film is dark and it's evil so we got to have a dark evil and drab visual style okay <clears throat> so with all, so all this clumsiness aside here's where here's another example of how bad the writing is so so you have robert you know he's applying to this firm the same firm for 20 years and <clears throat> and wouldn't you know it the person that that becomes one of the new bosses at this firm is this woman named Diana. Diana is the same woman that uh, Robert cheated on cheated on uh, his girlfriend with before they got married. So before uh, Melinda and Robert got married, he was he was uh, he slept with uh, this this woman named Diana one time. 
But oh, how convenient circumstances this this is because Diana, his former jump off, his former side piece that one time happens to be one of the big bosses at this firm who just so happens to catch wind of Robert's brilliant battery invention, who just so happens to give him the opportunity that he needs, that he so desperately needs to 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 finally get his invention off the ground and make some money and make a real impact. It's a small world after all. And and on, and and the way this was set up is that apparently uh uh Robert's uh invention, he's been submitting this invention from this firm because this this firm has this huge this big lottery system set up. And this lottery system is where you can you can like send your invention year after year and hope to get called up. But if you do get that call from the firm, then you literally have to drop any everything that you're doing right in that moment and you have to go to that firm and get that interview within an hour's time. So you could be in the middle of watching your 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 wife give birth, but if you get that phone call, see you later honey, I got to get that job. I got to take that money. So that's that's how it works. And so um, there's a scene where Robert finally buckles down and he decides to work for her, her, his wife's sister's delivery company that they've set up with their husbands. You can see where this is going. And so, the, so the, the, the sisters and the husband tell Robert that, okay, we have this major delivery set up. It's, it's, it's got to be delivered at this time and it's, it's our biggest client ever and he wants this delivery on the dot in a certain, in this certain way. So you, Robert, you're the one lone delivery person that's got to make this happen. And if you make this delivery happen, it can, it can bring our delivery firm to the big time, which is what we need, baby. Daddy needs a new pair of shoes, baby. You can't mess this up. You can't mess this up up Robert can you dig it sucker and so Robert he's he's in the middle of the road he's in the middle of the road he's on his way to make this this oh so important delivery but lo and behold he gets the phone call from Diana who works at the firm who tells him we finally we finally decided to see your invention so whatever it is you're doing drop it drop that shit and come over right now so what does Robert do? He just turns around the van and drives right to the firm. So thereby uh, sacrificing his, uh, his, his wife's brother's business for his own personal gain. But then again, he's been applying for, t- for, 20, for two decades. So you can understand where he's coming from. He had to make a sacrifice. And so initially he, get, he gets the interview and Robert uh, is offered a very lowball offer of $800,000 for his invention. He turns it down flat. And man, because he turns down the money, he turns down that money, which could have um, really benefited Melinda because keep in mind, Melinda lost her mother's house in foreclosure because of, because of her husband spending all her money on her husband working on his invention she lost her mother's house, which was part of her inheritance, okay? So when she hears that Robert turned down all that money on top of failing to make that important delivery for her, you know, for her, his wife's husband's business, shit goes downhill from there. You see a scene where... <clears throat> you, you see a scene where... Oh, and, and, and before this happens... Um, 
uh, one of one of uh, Melinda's sisters goes into um goes into the deliver to to Robert's delivery van, and she sees uh, uh Diana's purse. She sees Diana's purse sitting on underneath the back underneath the seat because there was a scene where Robert and Diana met for for lunch for a business deal, to to make the the business ha- the deal happen, and so and so uh so uh, Melinda's sister instantly thinks oh she's cheating on him she's cheating on he's cheating on her again. It is a hot ass mess. It is a hot ass mess, Edwin uh, uh, Eddie. Let me tell you. So she so so. So um so she gets she so her sister finds the purse she instantly says oh Robert's sneaking around again she sh- knowing and knowing that Melinda has an anger management issue for lack of for for to put it mildly she shows Melinda uh uh Diana's wallet which has her ID and everything and Melinda just goes fucking nuts and so there's a scene where Robert comes home. And he not only turns down the eight hundred thousand dollar lowball offer, he not only uh, he not only tanks his brother in law's delivery business business, but he meets all of them inside their house, and Taraji P Henson is sitting there, just silent, just seething, with anger, and rage, and insanity. And Robert is just pleading with her, pleading with Melinda, please, you gotta understand. I turned down this money because it's not it's not a good offer. I believe I can I can get something better. I'm so close. And Melinda is like, you turned down eight hundred thousand dollars. You know, knowing that that could have paid for my mama's house that she left me, knowing that I spent all this money on you for your hopes and for your dreams while I'm out there busting my ass in that office job. And then she just turns and looks at Robert dead in, her, dead in his eye, a deep track of the cigarette, exhales and goes, you know I can be the motherfucking devil. And Robert is just like, okay, I'm going to pack my shit and leave. So Robert packs his stuff and he leaves. And Taraji B. Henson just flies off the handle because she's like, because she's like, this motherfucker cheated on me again with the same woman. I'm going to get his ass. Oh boy. And, and um, fast forward a little bit in this scene. Fast forward a little bit, and um, Robert actually finds a better deal for his invention. He manages to get his. He manages to sell his invention, or the <clears throat> the uh, he manages he manages to sell his invention while managing to keep the uh, intellectual rights for his invention for ten million dollars. For like no, I think it was like I guess like. $80 million or something like that. It was basically like almost close to $100,000, basically. Like, I think it was $75 million. So Robert finally gets a, a, a much better deal for his battery invention for $75 million. And so there's a scene, fast forward to sometime after um, after uh, uh, Melinda and Robert, they, they officially divorce. They divorce, and Robert decides to... Um, to uh, spend time with Diana, who helped him get the job. 
Mind you, the same woman that he cheated on with when they were younger. That he cheated on Melinda with, rather. So there's a scene. Fast forward for, to some time later. Uh, Melinda and Robert, they're divorced. Robert's moved on with, with, uh, with Diana. Melinda, but Melinda, Melinda doesn't know this yet. So one day, Robert shows up at Melinda's job. And Melinda gets up and she's like, what do you want? And Robert's like, listen, man. I'm so sorry. I love I, I love you and I always will. I'm sorry that I couldn't be the husband that you wanted me to be. So I know you spent 20 years of your life, you know, believing believing in v- in me, investing in me, investing in my hopes and dreams. So here, this is for you. So Robert gives Melinda a check of 10 million dollars. And the deed and keys to her mother's house. So Robert went out of his way to repurchase Melinda's mom's house, which she lost in foreclosure, gave the keys and the deed back to Melinda and a check of $10 million and said, thank you, thank you. I'm sorry that, you know, I couldn't be the husband you wanted me to be, but this makes, I hope this makes up for it. Okay. At that point, if you get if you get a check of ten million dollars from your ex, would would you not take the would you not take that check if 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 you and your ex split on bad terms and your ex came back and said, "Hey, I'm real sorry that things didn't work out. I hope I wish the best for you." Here, here's a check of ten million dollars. You would if you say if you tell me. To my face that you would not take that money, you are a goddamn liar. And and uh does Melinda take the money? Well, yes, she does, but ah, but here's the thing. Here's where the movie goes straight into Crazyville, like it hasn't already. This is where it goes off the goddamn starts to go off the dot uh, approach the cliff, like Thelma and Louise. So the next scene, um Melinda. Melinda appears at Robert's new uh, penthouse suite that he purchased, his new penthouse apartment, and she's and she goes in there with a trench coat, and she's about to surprise him, you know, with some sexy, you know, lingerie, and she's about to show Robert the centrifugal the centrifugalness of her body, ready to like get it on, like hey, um, and like she's about to rekindle that that spark that they had when they were married. So she was she's hoping to rekindle that their uh, their relationship, and maybe they can remarry, you know, rediscover their love. But wouldn't you know it? No, Jesus! Here comes Diana, who comes, who who shows up, who shows up in the in the in the apartment. Turns out that Diana and Robert are engaged, and she shows Melinda her ring. And then, <laughs> and on top of that, she tells Melinda that she's pregnant with that she is with child, and Melinda goes fucking nuts she goes fucking batshit insane like to the point where she is stalking she is stalking diana she's following robert and uh diana on facebook and social media her her social media handle very subtle is called pissed at life 
because that's that's very subtle, Tyler. Very very clever. Her 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 social media handle is pissed at life, and she's leaving all these malicious and threatening comments like, "Oh fuck you, fuck your you know fuck your relationship, y'all ain't shit, this and that. Oh I can kill you. I wish I could hurt you, this and that and the third. Just like leaving these horrible messages to the point where Robert and 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 Diana they have to they have to file a restra- a restraining order against this woman, Melinda. And because Melinda has it in her head that that Di- what Diana Di- Diana has my life. That's supposed to be my life. I'm supposed to be a multimillionaire, just like Robert. Robert's supposed to give me his money. I'm entitled to Robert's money. I'm entitled to his success. I want it all. I want it all. And and mind you, she's legal she's not legally entitled to a goddamn thing because Robert got rich after they divorced so she's not entitled to a red cent but she gets it in her head that that she's entitled to all of his riches and all of his success and so and this is where the and this is where the movie goes goes overboard goes off the damn cliff because she not only turns down the 10 million dollar check but there's a scene where she decides to take revenge on Robert and Gail. So there's a scene in the film where where uh, Melinda is inside her house, you know, dancing like a crazy person, just dancing, you know, underneath this red moon, underneath this this this, this red mood lighting. Because you know she has to be, she has to be lit underneath red. Because red is the color of evil. Red is the color of Satan. Because that's subtle. Because we don't, we wouldn't understand that she's crazy and evil otherwise. So there's a there's a freaking scene in the there's a freaking dance scene where Taraji P Henson she's dancing like she's freaking Shinsuke Nakamura, just like just like doing all this, doing all this stuff, and just like going like like this, and. I don't know if she's channeling Shinsuke Nakamura or if she's having a seizure, but she's just going nuts. And 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 the and the film and I'm gonna spoil the last the last uh, part of the film because it's a Tyler Perry movie. Don't worry about spoilers. So there's a scene where <clears throat> where the, the where she decides to take revenge on Robert and Gail once and for all. So there's a scene where uh, she's trying to escape her. Uh, her house, but her her sisters and her brothers in law get you know they 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 realize that she's about to do something completely effed up and horrible. So they de- they decide to keep her trapped inside her house. So when she storms out the front door, uh, her sisters have their cars uh, parked way too uh, way too close towards to uh, to Melinda's car, so she can't get out. So Melinda decides to storm storm off to the backyard to escape. But she sees her sister's husband sitting there, sitting there in the back playing cards, chilling. So she can't, so she can't escape their their gaze. So Melinda, she sneaks out of the bathroom window on the side where they can't see her. And so, fast forward to the last, the last scene in the film where Robert and Diana they're chilling on this yacht, this this nice opulent yacht living the good life you know enjoying their riches enjoying their 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 child which is on the way so diana's you know she's in her early stages of pregnancy you know they're looking at the the starry night sky which is horribly green screened like i haven't seen that's that was probably the fakest looking sky i've seen in any film in any modern film for that matter so i guess they're in the middle of the ocean or in the middle of the bay or whatever i don't know where exactly but 
somehow, but um, so there's a scene where um, so in so while they're in the, while they're on their yacht chilling, uh, Diana decides to go downstairs into the uh into the bedroom, <clears throat> and while she's there, all of a sudden, Melinda appears out of nowhere in this in this white dress and she's carrying a gun and she points it at Robert. She appears out of nowhere. So I'm thinking in my head, okay, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Question. How in the blue hell did she get on the goddamn yacht? <laughs> is she Aquaman? Does she have the power is she is she Aquaman? Did she ride a dolphin all the way from the beach to the to the yacht? Uh, did she teleport? We don't know. Did, did she stow away on the yacht? We don't know. We don't see how she got on the boat. But she appears out of nowhere and she's pointing a gun at Robert talking about, you're going to give me everything that you owe me. And then she shoots him. She shoots the guy in the, she shoots poor Robert in the gut. And all, and and all the the crew members on the yacht they're trying to stop her, but then but then Taraji just points her gun at them and she's like jump jump jump, and she's like pointing the gun at them one by one and one by one all these crew members they jump overboard, and in fact there's one there's one uh one last crew member who does a full on Olympic dive while going ah! like like he waited his whole life to do that dive or some shit, <laughs> and so and so uh um. So poor Robert, he's crawling all the way to the end of the to the uh, to the rear of the yacht, and um and then Diana comes out of nowhere and she ambushes uh uh Melinda and throws her overboard into the sea, and so Melinda and so Melinda she's thrown overboard and she's kind of like knocked unconscious, but the yacht is still going, and so uh so Diana she she stops the yacht, and then she gets on she gets on this little uh, boat to uh to rescue all the other uh crew members that jumped overboard and she manages and she manages to do this with no problem mind you in the middle of the sea where it's pitch black out and there were and i guess there was no visible flashlight so apparently diana has some experience in boating because she manages to rescue all of these crew members with no problem okay but while she's out there in the dead of night, trying to rescue these crew members from drowning, Robert he he gets on he gets to his feet and he's trying to make his way back to the front of the yacht. Out of nowhere, Taraji P Henson just 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 rises from rises from her watery grave. She rises out of nowhere. The, the she the the out of the film doesn't explain how she managed to swim a, back aboard the yacht and on top of that she's dry as a bone she's not even wet <laughs> she's not even wet <laughs> the film it's, I don't know if the, I don't know if <laughs> oh my god. I don't know. This is the most blatant continuity error I've seen. This is where Tyler Perry doesn't give a remote shit about editing. This is this is his incompetence shining through, man, because she shows up on the boat and not only is she not wet, she's no longer carrying a gun. She's carrying a freaking hatchet. She's carrying an axe that she summoned out of nowhere. I, I well, actually she she grabbed it from one of from the one of the walls of the yacht. And she's just dragging it right behind her, all shambling, just dragging it behind her like she's one of the nurses in Silent Hill. Just like all jerky movies, like, 
I'm going to get you, Robert. I'm going to get you. And poor Robert, he's just bleeding out, and he collapses in the front of the yacht. Taraji P. Henson, she ch- and she just chops him. She chops him with the hatchet. But the way... But the way that moment was shot was just so poorly shot that you couldn't tell what happened. You couldn't tell if she chopped off his foot like Kuta Kinte or decapitated him. Nothing. It, it, it was it was like it was like the camera. It, it, it was so poorly framed. And on top of that, you had CG blood, CGI blood that looked like um, the, the the spray can effect from Microsoft Paint. And so and so right after she she slashes him with a hatchet, she somehow gets her. Her foot caught in the uh, anchor chain, and the anchor chain just suddenly shoop, just slides overboard along with the anchor and along with Melinda, who gets dragged underneath the sea and she drowns. And she's just hanging out, hanging at the bottom of the sea, like a like a crazed porcelain doll. And then, and then, um, then the then the, then the whole then the whole movie ends with. With uh, with with Gail and the crew members coming back on board, and uh, and looking after Robert, and and you know tending tending to Robert, and then the scene, then the movie just ends, cut to credits. We don't know if Robert survived. We don't know if he died. The movie just cuts to credits as soon as Taraji P. Henson gets dragged underground under 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 the sea and dies a really gritty gritty death. <sighs> Okay, I'm looking. I've realized that I've spent the better part of a half hour breaking down this whole movie for you. Did anything, ask yourself, did anything that I've just said, did anything I said make any sense whatsoever? If the answer is no, then I don't blame you because this is how the movie was written. I gotta say, acrimony was freaking terrible. But you know what? It's just, I, I, I think it's the funniest. And craziest unintentional comedy I've seen since Temptation, Confessions of a Marriage Counselor from Tyler Perry like five years ago. Um, this movie was complete bullshit. It was completely awful. But you know what? I had a lot of fun watching this movie because I had a lot of fun laughing at it uh, and just watching just how incompetently made this movie was. In fact... I watched it with my girlfriend and her and and her mom and and uh, her brother, and we all we all had a we all had a jolly good time watching this movie. In fact, <clears throat> what made this movie even even better was was there was some guy there was some guy in our screening, and you know what? Big ups to this guy because this dude provided some funny commentary throughout the film. So whenever some crazy shit happened, this guy would go, "Damn," or "Oh hell no." Or that bitch be crazy, or I ain't gonna do that shit, or something like that. Like this, d- <laughs> oh my God. this d- yo, I would, I would love, I would love to to get my hands on the Blu-ray edition of Acrimony, and I hope there's like an audi- audience commentary track where whenever some crazy stuff happens in the film, you just hear somebody on the comment tra- on the commentary track go, "God damn, holy shit." Yo, that bitch be crazy. <laughs> oh my! This, this freak! Ah! Oh my god! You, you know what? I you know I I I, I rag on Tyler Perry so much, and you know what? 
<laughs> I think I'm losing I'm losing my goddamn mind talking about this movie. Tyler Perry's Acrimony. It's 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 a if if you've seen any Tyler Perry movie, you know what you're in for. It's it's way over the top, poorly written, just just incomprehensible, inconceivable. But you know what? It's trash. It's trash that I enjoy. It was trash that I was thoroughly entertained by for all the wrong reasons. This is a movie where if where you should you should like Redbox it. When it comes out on Redbox, Redbox Tyler Perry's Acrimony, call up your friends and have a bad movie night. This is a movie that was made to be cracked on from start to finish. Get your get your friends going, get some drinks going, get some snacks going, get some nice hors d'oeuvres going, and just go to town on this movie. Just crack on it because this movie is just fucking nuts. It is insane. And I mean, and you know what? And you know what? I, I, t- as far as Tyler Perry goes, like I said, he's no Barry Jenkins. He's no Ava DuVernay. He's no Ryan Coogler. He's no Spike Lee. He's no Jordan Peele. He's no Steve McQueen. Okay, he is not on the level of of black filmmakers in the black filmmaking pantheon. Not at all. He's not. He's not Casey Lemons. He's not Julie Dash. He's not a bunch of black directors I can name right now. But you know what? Tyler Perry, I think, has a place in cinema. I think Tyler Perry is is a secret genius. Because Tyler Perry is a whiz at making the unintentional comedy. In other words, films that are meant to be taken seriously, but end up being the most hilarious and craziest comedies you'll ever see from any director. So you know what? As far as the unintentional comedy genre goes... Tyler Perry is a master at that, so I salute him as far as that goes. So please, after all that's been said, Tyler Perry's Acrimony, it's in theaters still. If you have Movie Pass, then you might as well watch it because you know, Movie Movie Pass means that this movie is basically free. You're paying what, 9.95 a month? And you can watch all the movies you want in theaters, provided as long as they're not three D screenings, of course. But yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's all I'm gonna say. Tyler Perry's Acrimony, y'all. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay, so not not that I've uh, thoroughly uh, lost my mind. Uh, Eddie Eddie Ortiz says, uh, "Yes, it it is a great comedy movie," and. Um, I bet that's the last Tyler Perry movie I watched. Well, uh, maybe, maybe. Um, I I, I definitely will not watch any Medea movie, that's for sure. Because with Medea, Medea is way too, just, just, just way too, way too annoying and irritating for my tastes. But any non Tyler, any non Medea Tyler Perry movie that's in the same level as Acrimony or Temptation, I'll be there. I will definitely be there. So yeah, man. Uh, whew, that about does it for uh, Victor's Corner uh, this week. Like I said, um, <clears throat> uh, Carl is attending SmackDown Live, so uh, so hopefully you'll have fun there, my friend, as well as some of the other members from the Wrestling Fantasy Warfare group on Facebook. Hopefully, you guys will have a great show. I'll be tuning in tonight via cable. 
Um, hopefully, uh, like I said, tonight's SmackDown uh, Superstar Shakeup will yield some better picks this time because, like I said, SmackDown had the short end, short end of the stick last year. Hopefully, it's a it's a different case this time around. And um, <clears throat> and uh, yeah, you know, I, I, I was I was gonna th- I was gonna leave with a with a question of the week. But um, Carl usually Carl's usually good at uh, coming up with uh, questions of the week on the fly. But uh, let me let me think let me think of a, of a wrestling related one since we're talking about the shakeup and and all this. Oh, okay. Here's here's a question. Here's a question. Uh, question question of the week for all of our wrestling fans. Um, <clears throat> which wrestler do you think is the most underutilized in the WWE on the main roster. So whoever that is, let let us know as far as the far as, as far as question of the week goes. Who could be used better on the main roster in the WWE? Uh, my answer to that question is Becky Lynch. And like I've said before in the podcast, Becky Lynch is criminally misused on the main roster, whether she's on Raw or SmackDown. I think <clears throat> I think if, if I was booking it, I would have Becky Lynch be a a top top level champion. I would have her be like the woman to beat next to Asuka. And then like you can you can have Becky build this like great great uh win streak and she recaptures either the either the SmackDown or Raw Women's Championships and then she just goes on a tear just beating wrestlers left and right. And then you can have like an awesome match between her and Asuka for the women's championship. And I think that could definitely bring uh, Becky Lynch and Asuka to that high, that upper echelon, I feel. So definitely Becky Lynch, she she needs to be used way, way better than she is now. But uh, whatever your question, whatever your answer to that question is, let us know in the comments below or whenever the question of the week pops up. Uh, like I said, thank you so much for tuning in on Victor's Corner this week. Uh, next week, we will have the Codex Prime podcast back again for another episode. And um, you can also, you can always find our episodes on Facebook Live, SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, uh, and YouTube as well. Also drop a, drop a five-star review when you get the chance on iTunes. And you can also follow us on social media via Twitter at Codex Prime Cast and Instagram as well. Thank you so much for watching. I am Victor Omoyo, and I will catch you on the flip. Peace out, nerds.